Well, good morning, everyone. So I've got one sibling in my family, a brother, and he kindly came along this morning to hear me talk. So he's um, been very supportive of me over the years, which I really appreciate. And just um, given that he was coming today, I was thinking to myself, you know what? What better opportunity than to share with all of you a story that involves him? (laughs) So, as you can imagine, there have been a number of stories involving my brother over the years that I can remember. A lot of um, um, those may be embarrassing stories, but I thought, look, he's come here to support me. I'm not going to tell one of those embarrassing stories. If you know my brother, you'll know that he's a very stoic person, and what that means is he's he's very resilient um, in in challenging circumstances. So I thought I'd share with you this story that um, indicates just how stoic he is. Okay, so the context is this. We are travelling through Asia, and we're in transit um, in Singapore, waiting for a night flight to take us back home to Sydney. So whilst we're waiting in transit... We catch up with an uncle of ours for dinner, and we go have this fantastic dinner at an Indian restaurant. Great food, and the one small issue was that there were some nuts in some of the food that we ate, and well, it just so happens that my brother is allergic to nuts. So we have this dinner, we're at the airport, we're um, just waiting for this night flight, and my brother just casually mentions to me, oh, um, you know, my throat's starting to get a little bit itchy. So that didn't really concern us too much at that time because this is what happened over the years from time to time. And what we thought we'd do uh, would be just to go to the airport chemist, pick up some antihistamines off the shelf, all good, all sweet. But unbeknownst to us, what was actually happening was my brother was having this anaphylactic reaction. And if you know what that means it's uh, a very serious allergic reaction. It's a life-threatening reaction and you need medical attention immediately. So we were unaware of this. We just kept on talking and why I'm sharing the story is just to share with you just the manner or the casual manner in which he, he raised the alarm. So the conversation went, you know, something along the lines of, oh, you know, that was a good dinner that we had with our uncle, wasn't it? By the way, I'm finding it really difficult to breathe right now. What movies do you reckon they'll show on the plane? <laughs> so it, it took me a little bit of time for me to click in my head what was actually happening. And then when it finally did, I realised that this wasn't just some mild reaction that could be dealt with with these off-the-shelf antihistamines. It was a medical emergency and we needed help straight away. So what we did after I realised was we ran throughout the airport looking for the airport doctor. We finally found him. He took one look at my brother. He gave him two injections of adrenaline and he told him to lie down on the patient bed to, to recover. So after he lay down for some time and he recovered, we'd actually lo- um, missed our flight home and we had to stay the night overnight in, in the airport. Luckily, Singapore Airport, they have one of these mini 24-hour cinemas where we thought, oh, okay, we're going to wait it out, you know, over the the night, right? Um, Has anyone seen that movie, P.S. I Love You? um, We we may have seen that at 3 a.m. in the morning. I I may have cried during that, but I put that down to the adrenaline, you know, coursing through your your veins and just that relief kind of thing. But um, the main thing was that my brother was now okay. He He was safe. 
So you may be wondering at this stage, that was an interesting story, but what on earth does it have to do with our passage today? Well, why I shared that story is because it actually has a lot of parallels with the passage that we'll be going through this morning. And um, it has a lot of parallels in terms of the awareness that we should have of our core nature. And I'm going to return to this story from time to time as we work through our passage. So whether you're uh, here and you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, when you take a look at yourself, you may be thinking one of two things. You may be thinking this. Yes, I know that there are a couple of areas in my life where I know that I do the wrong thing. But generally, I think I'm a pretty good person. Or you may be thinking this. I've got these areas in my life where I keep on doing things that I know I shouldn't be doing, but I'm really struggling to stop doing them. So which one of these are you? In our passage today, God's Word speaks to these two ways that we look at ourselves. Are you really a good person? How do you deal with the things that you're struggling to stop doing in your life? So, will you join me in prayer as we start to look at his word this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the time that we have together this morning. Please help us put aside the distractions and the busyness of our lives just for a moment to focus on your word and what your word is telling us about our core condition and what we can do about it. Amen. So, this morning we're in the book of Romans and it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Church. So he wrote this letter to the Roman Church around AD 50. And at that time, the church was made up of Jewish Christians as well as non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. So you've got the Jewish people on the one hand. And if you're familiar with your, your Bible history, you know that the Jewish people, they're this special group of people that God has chosen to be a channel of blessing to everyone else in the world. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, remember what God promised to Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, uh, in Genesis 22. He says to uh, Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then on the other hand, you've got everyone else, the, the Gentiles. So in the first few chapters of this letter, Paul writes about what Jesus' death on the cross and him being raised from the dead means now for both Jews and Gentiles alike. So were Jewish people, God's chosen people, still in a special or different position compared with the Gentiles? Earlier in chapter 3 of this letter, Paul says no. He says this in verses 22 and 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Well, let's fast forward now to chapter 7, which is our passage today. In our passage today, you can see that Paul now writes about this thing called the law that applied to the Jewish people and what its relevance is to both Jewish people and to Gentiles now. So firstly, what is the law? So Paul's referring here to the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. And what this was, was it was a set of commandments, commands that God had given to the Jewish people, his chosen people. So what it did was that it set the rules for his special relationship with him. 
and there were a lot of commands. There were 365 negative commands and 248 positive for a total of, so who's good at maths here? Anyone? Well, I'm not, I had to write it down. So <laughs> 613 commands in total. Thankfully though, Paul says that now because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, these laws no longer apply. So earlier in chapter 7, in verse 6, Paul says that by trusting in Jesus, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. So fantastic. Jesus has done away with these laws, so they're not relevant to anyone anymore. We can have an early mark and enjoy the wonderful winter day we have today. No, that's not right. So the law still serves an important purpose, and we're now at point one, if you're following on your outlines this morning. So what's the purpose of the law for us? Its purpose is this. The law makes us firstly aware of what sin is. Let's um, have a reread of verse 7. It says this, if you've got your Bibles open. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, and let's have a listen to this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So if if you remember, you shall not covet, or um, in other words, desire something to make you happy above God making you happy, is one of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments form part of the law. So what Paul's saying here is that the law provides this clear marker for us in terms of what's right and what's wrong. The law makes us aware of what sin is in the first place. And so what is sin? If we keep on focusing on the Ten Commandments, then they can really be summarized like this. We're called to trust in God above all other things, and that's what we've been created and what we've been designed to do. But what sin is, however, is us turning away from trusting in God to trust in ourselves instead. So it's us turning away from God, turning away from trusting in God, and turning to trust in ourselves. So I remember one time when I travelled down to my Melbourne office for for work. I got in after taking the flight down and the, the taxi from the airport, and I found the first available... Um, desk that was available and I sat myself down at this desk and I saw one of his, um, this colleague that I knew and then my colleague came up and the first thing was, my colleague looked at me and said, you're in breach of our policy and then the first thing that came over me was this sense of guilt and you're just like, oh, what, what have I done, right? And then you think, wait a minute, I've just gotten here, I haven't even had time to be in breach of nothing. But what had actually turned out was, um, what I'd done was I'd put my jacket on um, my, my chair when I, when I got in, and that was in breach of our OHS policy. And why that was is because if you hang up your jacket on, your, on the back of your chair, then it can fall off and it can get caught up in the, the wheels of the swivel chair, and then that can cause a hazard. And then, you know, there have been injuries, believe it or not, through this sort of stuff. So there was a new OHS policy, and then this is one of the things that you could not do. So until my colleague called out this new OHS policy, I was totally ignorant of the fact that I was doing something wrong. So 
in the same way Paul's saying here in verse 7 that the law makes us aware firstly of what sin is, what's right and wrong. And um, as we've just mentioned, it's us turning away from trusting in God to trusting in ourselves. But Paul goes further than this to say that the law not only makes us aware of what sin is in the first place, but it also makes us aware that all of us are sinful. So, earlier in um, chapter 3, in verse 19, Paul says this, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What Paul's saying here is that even though the law only applied to the Jewish people, what it does is that it shows us what's right and what's wrong, so that it applies to everyone. And because of that, it shows us that all of us have done the wrong thing. You see, all of us have turned away from God, and instead we've turned to trusting in ourselves. But then Paul goes on to say that the Lord does even more than make us aware of what sin is, and the fact that all of us are sinful. And I'm now at point two, if you're following on your outlines this morning. So in the next verse, in verse 8, he says this, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. What's he saying here? He's saying that not only does the law make clear to us what sin is, but it actually reveals to us that we have a sinful nature. So I'm going to repeat this again. Not only does the law make clear to us what sin is, but it also reveals to us that we have a sinful nature. And what is this sinful nature? It's more than just doing the wrong thing from from time to time involves us actively wanting to sin or trust in ourselves, involves us actively wanting to find ways to trust in ourselves at every opportunity. So for some of us here, I imagine you would have been to Asia before. One of the things that I like uh, when I go to Asia is seeing all of the, the random signage that's up or the you know very poorly written English and some of the funny things that um, you know, you can go onto the internet and find a whole host of these types of examples. So, one time I was in Malaysia and I went into a bathroom there and there was this sign there, it was quite a large sign and it was showing you and telling you and then having pictures in terms of all the different things that you should not be doing whilst you're in this bathroom. So it was quite a big sort of poster and um, there were some of the standard things that were just there, um, like only put used toilet paper in the toilet, um, which you know, obviously that's you know, you're pretty familiar with. But then there were some more unusual ones, and there were a couple of unusual ones which caught my eye. So one was no washing your vegetables in the sink basin. And I thought, okay. Um, but the most unusual one was no washing your feet in the sink basin. So until I'd seen that sign, I would have never thought of doing either of those things. But then after seeing that sign, I just could not stop thinking about doing the very things it was saying that I should not be doing. I mean, surely you've got to wash your veggies first before washing your feet, isn't that right? (laughs) But so in a similar way, what Paul's saying here in verse 8 is that even after knowing what's right 
and what's wrong. What the law does is that it shows us our sinful nature in that we actively seek out ways of doing what we shouldn't be doing, which is trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. Now, you may be here thinking, no, I'm not like that. I consider myself generally to be a good person, and I'm now at point 2A of your outlines if you're following this morning. But let's take an honest look at ourselves. What are the things that we do when no one else is watching So what are the things that we do when we're on our smartphones or watching the TV alone or alone with our boyfriend or girlfriend? What are the secret thoughts and feelings that go through our heads from time to time? Let's be reminded of all those times where we do things or we're tempted to do things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. You see, without knowing the law, you can go about your your day-to-day life, being ignorant of your sinful nature. And this is what Paul means when he says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. But now being aware of the law, all of us are now guilty because of our sin. In verse 9, he says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So what Paul says is that there's nothing wrong with the law itself. It's our sin that's the problem. In verses 10 to 12, he says this. He says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What the law does is that it establishes all of our guilt. The punishment for which, as we can see, is death. So whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian here, many of us here are very good at downplaying the extent of our sin, aren't we? We say, yes, I know I do the wrong things from time to time. I may tell the occasional white lie. I may engage in lust on occasion. I may have these hidden feelings of being jealous of someone's career or material possessions. But generally, I think I'm a good person. Now, what God's Word is telling us this morning is that these things are just the the tip of the iceberg, just the visible signs of something much deeper within. Just like my brother having his nut allergy, what God's Word is telling us here is that we have a condition that goes right down to our core fundamental being. That condition is our sinful nature that's ever-present in the background. And not only do we sin from time to time, but our nature actively seeks out ways to trust in ourselves and not in God. And just like my brother's condition being a life-threatening condition, our sinful nature is also life-threatening in that the due punishment for it is death. But on the other hand, you may be a person who's fully aware of your faults, that you do things you know are wrong. You want to stop doing these things, but keep on doing them. I'm now at point 2B for those who are following on your outlines. So let's listen to what Paul says from verse 14 through to verse 23. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I'm going to ask, can you relate to this? Do you continue to do things that you don't want to do, that you know aren't right? Having been a Christian for a number of years, this is the thing that I can really relate to myself. We continue to act on our anger, we continue to lust, we continue to be jealous and want what other people have. We continue to trust in ourselves. But given what Paul has told us earlier about our core nature being sinful, however, we shouldn't really be surprised at this. Again, what we need to realise is that these things we do that we know are wrong, but are just a window into our core problem, which is our sinful nature. So just like my brother and I needed to recognise that he was having this anaphylactic reaction to nuts and that antihistamines would do absolutely nothing to cure him, we need to recognise that our problem goes right down to our core and fixing certain behaviours of ours, just these external superficial things, they won't deal with this underlying problem of our sinful nature, which is a life-threatening condition. And what we need to realise is that this core problem of our sinful nature is not something that we can fix by ourselves using our own efforts. So I'm going to repeat this. This core problem of our sinful nature, it's not something that we can fix by ourselves using our own efforts. In verse 14, we can see that Paul says we are slaves to sin. And in verse 23, he says that we're prisoners to sin. I mean, they're such appropriate images, aren't they? What they really convey is the fact that we're held captive to our sinful nature. We can't get out and we need someone to set us free. As we move to point three of our outlines, Paul really conveys in verse 24 our helplessness in dealing with our sinful nature. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he points to our one hope, our rescuer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see, it's Jesus and it's Jesus alone who's able to deal with our fundamental core problem of our sinful nature. So how does Jesus deliver, or in other words, save us from our sinful nature? What he does is he takes the punishment of death that we all deserve for our sin. He takes it upon himself and he dies in our place. And this is purely by God's grace. What this means is that it's his free gift. It's got nothing at all to do with ourselves and our own efforts and what we deserve. So by Jesus dying on our place, what happens is we're justified, which means that we're declared innocent before God. Just like my brother having to get a doctor to help him when he was having his anaphylactic reaction, We too, we need someone external to help us. 
And like the adrenaline shots that he received, we too need something appropriate to deal with this core problem of ours, this life-threatening condition of, of sin that we have. But what Jesus' sacrifice does it's, is that it's even better than just one shot of adrenaline to deal with one instance of an allergic reaction. So earlier, Johnny read out this wonderful passage, which is Romans um, chapter 8, the very next chapter, and it starts off with the words that he read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what no condemnation means is that Jesus' death on the cross is all-sufficient in that by that one act, he takes the punishment that we all deserve for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And for those of us who trust in his sacrifice on the cross, our status is forever changed from being guilty to being innocent. So you may be a Christian here, and you may be thinking, yes, I I know all this, but why do I still struggle with sin? And Maybe you're already familiar with the book of Romans, and you may be thinking, wait a minute, isn't this passage in Romans 7 um, inconsistent with Romans 6, which says that because of Jesus, we're no longer slaves to sin? Isn't Paul being um, inconsistent? Isn't he contradicting himself here? Well, no, Paul's not contradicting himself here. What he's referring to in this passage is this now and not yet status that Christians have We now have been declared innocent because of Jesus, but yet we still have a sinful nature and will only be fully dealt with. This is only going to be fully dealt with when we meet Jesus face to face. Has anyone watched that TV um, series, which um, I forget what the name is now, Um, the one where um, you've got this um, person who's this... um, He's, uh, held, he's a soldier, and then he's held um, captive by Al-Qaeda, and he's released. Is anyone... I remember it now. It's called Homeland. Has anyone watched Homeland? I don't know if it's still on, um, but I watched it a long time ago when I had a lot more time on my hands. So you've got this soldier. He's been held captive in Iraq by Al-Qaeda for the last eight years, and um, he's released from captivity, and he's brought back uh, to America, where he originally was from. And in, in season one, one of the early episodes, you've got this scene of him coming back to his family home and he's, um, he's sleeping at night. So he's back in his family bedroom and he's trying to sleep on the bed. But then he gets up. He can't sleep on the bed. And then what he does is that he goes and he lies down on the floor and only when he lies down on the floor can he sleep. And why was that? Um, It's because he was used to sleeping on the floor for the last eight years. And then even though he had all of these comforts and all the luxuries of being back in America in his family home, it was something that he he just couldn't do. And I think this is what Paul is referring to here in terms of this now and not yet status that Christians have. So uh, in terms of our status... We're declared as, as innocent, no longer guilty, but then you still have this sinful nature within you. You may still act as if you are still a captive. Just looking at verses 22 and 23, he says this, and I think it sums this up very well. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Okay, so we know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is all-sufficient in that if you trust in Him, your status before God is changed from guilty to innocent. But how does Christ's sacrifice help us to deal with our sin in the everyday? So for those following on your outlines, I'm now at point 3A. Firstly, what Christ's death on the cross does is that it enables us to admit to our failings. For those of us who think, yes, I do the wrong thing from time to time, but I'm generally a good person, it allows us to take an honest, hard and deep look at ourselves. And when we do that, we stop trying to justify or brush away our occasional lust, our anger, our jealousy. We see that these things are just the visible signs of what's within, which is our sinful nature. Okay, but some of you may be thinking at this point, why on earth would I want to do that? I'd rather not be aware of the extent of my sinful nature, thank you very much. You know, my life's pretty good as is, nothing's wrong. Why would I want to actually look deep into who I am as a, as a person? Uh, it's, it's like in that movie, The Matrix. Who's seen that classic movie, The Matrix? Do you guys not watch TV? Or, okay, okay, good, right? Um, Fun fact, uh, did anyone know that The Matrix came out in 1999, so almost 20 years ago? That's making me feel very old because I'm still thinking it's one of these current movies, right? But um, it's like when Morpheus tells Neo, you remember that scene, he says, you can uh, take the blue pill, which is take it and then continue with your life as is, or you can take the red pill, and what the red pill does is that it fully shows you things as they truly are. So, in the same way, some of you may be thinking, I'd rather take the blue pill, thank you very much. My life is pretty good at the moment, and I'd rather be unaware of my true sinful nature. And you may be thinking, I don't want to take the red pill to see my my true nature as I am. Well, I'd like to say two things in response to this. So, firstly, as we saw earlier, God's Word tells us that there is a consequence for those of us who turn away from trusting in God. And that consequence is death. By admitting to God our sinful nature, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross as taking the punishment that we deserve and turning back to trusting in God, death is something that no longer hangs over us. I mean, this is the incredible thing. We don't need to do anything to defeat death because Christ has done everything. Jesus has done everything already on the cross. And all we all we'd need to do is to trust that he's died for us and turn back and trust in him. When we're able to admit to our sinful nature and turn back to trust in God, um, a second thing happens, and this thing is really wonderful, and it's this. No longer are we burdened by having to cover up our failings. We can find true rest. No longer do we have to do this tiring work of having to constantly prove ourselves, to prove that we have worth. If we don't address our core condition of sin, the work that we need to do to prove ourselves is never-ending, and we need more and more and more. So 
will continue to need that bigger house, that promotion, better grades, a better looking body. It never ends. How do we get this rest? Well, we get it by coming before God each day, dependent and vulnerable, acknowledging our failings, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross and asking him to change us. You know, if you're here today exploring Christianity and you want to know more about this true rest that we get in Jesus, what I'd like to do is encourage you, continue to come to church, have a talk to the person who invited you here, have a talk to our pastors, our elders, our deacons. And as was mentioned earlier, we're going to be having um, this series of fresh suppers that start in August and they'll continue for the next five weeks in August and September, um, feel free to turn up to just one of these. They're a fantastic opportunity, as you would have seen from the video, just to ask the questions that you have in this informal setting. So I'd really encourage you to think about going to at least one of these suppers, if you can make it. So God's Word this morning, it, it also speaks to those of us who are fully aware of our failings, who are trying to turn away from our sin, but we're struggling to do so. And I'm now at the final point, which is point 3B of your outlines. You know, if you're someone who can identify with this, like myself, perhaps you need to firstly change your mindset to your sin. Perhaps you've been seeing your failings as just minor behavioural things that you can fix with your own efforts, rather than what they actually are windows into your core sinful nature that only Jesus can fix. So for someone like myself who's been a Christian for a number of years, then there is this tendency for um, me to go, oh, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a good person now, and then therefore all these sort of behavioural things that I've got, I can fix it using my own efforts. But what this passage this morning reminds us of is even after becoming a Christian, even after trusting Christ, you still remain sinful. There's still nothing that's good about you at all. And you continue needing Jesus every single day of your lives. So, once you realize that you've got to have this mindset change, then what you're going to do is you're going to stop using your own efforts to, um, to deal with your sin. And you're going to come to Jesus each day totally dependent on him. But, okay, so when we trust in Jesus, do we just not do anything ourselves? Do we just go, you know, trust and then that's it? What is, like, what's the role for ourselves? What Jesus tells us is that there is still a role for ourselves in dealing with our own sin. And as some of you may know, in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus tells us is, is what? He says that we should cut off our own sin. And what this means is that we should be proactive about dealing with sin in our lives. We should give this cutting off priority in our lives. You know, it's really easy just for you to go about your day-to-day life and go, oh, I've just fallen into that pattern of sin yet again uh, today. But what Jesus calls us to do is, he says, the very first thing we should do each day is to ask ourselves, what are the areas in my life where I know that I fail. What can I do to cut off this sin in my life? You know, there may be things you can do in advance 
like not put yourself in a position where you're tempted uh, to sin. So you um, can decide in advance, I'm not going to visit those websites or I'm not going to spend time alone with certain people. But also we should prepare ourselves for other situations where we know we can't avoid and we may be tempted to sin. So perhaps that person at school or uni with the better looks and grades and clothes, they make us jealous of them. Perhaps your eyes tend to turn to lust when you're at the gym. We should recognise all these occasions where we may be tempted to sin and we should prepare ourselves in advance by telling ourselves that we're going to turn to Jesus when we are tempted, that Jesus is all that we need and we're going to ask Jesus to keep us focused on him when we are tempted. So the final point that I'd like to make is for those of us who do recognise the seriousness of our sin, who do trust in Jesus, but still struggle with sin from time to time. What God's Word tells you here in this passage this morning is this, don't despair. You know, the very fact that Paul's struggle with his own sin is included here in God's Word means that God is actually fully aware that despite turning to trust in Christ, our nature remains sinful and will continue to fail at times. So he included this passage for our comfort. What our failings serve to do is that they turn us again and again to focus on the cross of Christ, to make us appreciate more and more that by that one act, all of our sins, past, present and future, were taken care of. And this was done purely because of Jesus' love for us. It doesn't depend at all on our own efforts. It's already been bought for us, and all we need to do is to turn to trust in that. In Romans 8, we see this other incredible thing that happens to us when we turn to trust in Christ. Remember what chapter 8, verse 1 says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what we get when we trust in Jesus is we get His Spirit the Holy Spirit living in us. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He works within us to sanctify us. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit changes us more and more, to be more and more like Christ. Now, you may not see the day-to-day work of the Spirit, but for those of us who are regulars here, why don't you take a look back at who you were a number of years ago and see how God has been changing you to the person that you are today. So a number of years ago, I did this boot camp. Who's done a boot camp here before? Anyone? So we're not very fit. We don't watch a lot of TV or movies. That's the moral of the story today. All right, so I went to a boot camp. It was the only one time I did a boot camp. I've never done a boot camp since then. And what they did was that they started you off firstly, by getting you to do a fitness test. And I got some poor result at this fitness test. And this program, this boot camp program, was very good because every week you had to do something different. So it felt like you were always struggling, you were never improving. But at the end of this program, what happened was that they got you to do exactly the same fitness test. And you could see that your fitness had exponentially improved over those few weeks. So... In the same way, God's Spirit may be doing this bit-by-bit work 
in our lives day by day, leading us to trust in Jesus more and more and making us more and more like Jesus each day. So I'm going to be asking the music team to come up now. And as I do that, I'd like to close now by inviting all of us to, um, to come before God in prayer. Maybe you're someone who's thought that you're a good person overall, but you're tired of having to prove yourself over and over again. Do you want to be freed from this never-ending cycle of more and more and more? Do you want to find true rest in Jesus? So God calls you to turn to Him now and find that rest in Him. Or perhaps you're someone who's trusted in Jesus for a while, like myself, but are struggling to deal with sin in your life. Could it be that you're using your own efforts to deal with your sin rather than appreciating that your sin is something deep within, it's your sinful nature that only Jesus can deal with? Or are you weighed down by despair, trying to deal with ongoing sin in your life? Again, God calls you to find comfort in Him, in the all-sufficient work of Jesus on the cross to deal once and for all with our sin. So God calls you to trust in the work of His Spirit living in you to make you more like Jesus. So can I invite all of us to come before God now in prayer? Father God, we just marvel at your great love for us that's displayed on the cross. You, you saw us in our helpless, our sinful state, doomed to your just punishment of death. And yet instead of giving us what we deserved, you gave us what was most precious to you, your son Jesus, who died in our place to free us from our sin. We just want to thank you for the rest that Jesus alone provides for us. And Father God, we ask that you please help us to turn again and again back to Jesus. Please do the work by your Spirit of changing us each day to be more and more like him until that work is completed when we meet him face to face. Amen.